This is the Advent season, and probably you know that the word Advent is a combination of two Latin words, one meaning to and the other come, or the coming. The coming to, this of course is referring to Jesus coming to earth. What is the real reason for the season? Well, let's let Jesus answer that question. He speaks, first of all, positively through the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verse 10. Speaking of himself, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And then, in a little different way, negatively, not negatively in the sense that it has negative implications, but the way in which Jesus states it, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45, he says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. So what is the reason for the season? Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Here is a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Today, we're looking at the third chapter of the book of Galatians. And it so happens that this section of the book of Galatians, which we have been looking at in some detail for several weeks now, has to do with the reason for the season. It has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may recall that the Paul was under attack by some false teachers. The theologians described them as Judaizers. What these false teachers were aiming to do is to add something to what Jesus Christ had done so that people could be saved. In other words, they were teaching, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that is not enough to be a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's something which you must add to what Jesus Christ did as he lived out his life in human flesh? And Jesus, by his own admission, fulfilled all the law, every aspect of it, every part of it, the judicial part, the ceremonial part, every aspect of the law Jesus kept. But then, as we're going to see in this passage, Jesus was the one who saved us from our sins. And that was enough. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised again on the third day to secure our salvation. This is a wonderful gospel which we have. But Paul was under attack. And in order to let those who would take exception with his apostleship understand that he indeed was just as much an apostle as Peter and James and John and the other nine apostles. He was just as much an apostle. He had been trained by Christ. He gives three evidences of that. One, beginning with verse 11 and going to the end of chapter 24, and that being that his apostleship was independent of any teaching from the Jerusalem apostles or the original band of apostles. And then in the first ten verses of chapter 2, he talks about 
how the Jerusalem apostles respected and saw that his apostle was indeed, the, his gospel rather, was indeed the same gospel which they had preached. And then he asserted his own apostleship in confronting the leader of the apostles, Peter, when Peter had begun to backtrack a bit and he himself had come under the spell of these false teachers who were saying that you had to add something to the work of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel according to Paul? And really it's the gospel according to Jesus, more importantly. It is that we are accepted through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let me say that one more time. We are accepted through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And not in any way because of good things which we have done. Any attempt that we might make to keep the rules and regulations set forth in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. So, let's see what Paul has to say here in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 together this morning. And he puts forth two arguments. One argument is what I would describe as the personal argument, the argument of personal experience. And then he sets forth the argument according to what we would call the Old Testament scriptures. And rather than read the entire passage, I'm just going to start at verse 1 and work with you through this passage of scripture. Verses 1 through 5 have to do with the argument from personal experience in relationship to Jesus Christ. The first five verses, Paul raises five individual questions, and the best way for us to understand this argument from personal experience is to read and consider each one of these questions. So we begin with verse 1 of Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now let me pick this apart a little bit. The word foolish does not mean morally foolish. Jesus says we should not call anyone a moral fool. He uses a certain word in the Sermon on the Mount when he describes that. That's not the word which is chosen here by Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This word literally means lacking brains. It's really an unflattering word. In fact, J.B. Phillips, the great translator of the New Testament, he calls it idiocy is what he calls it. He was not as kind maybe as the Apostle Paul was. But nevertheless, Paul is just blown away that these Galatians who had received Jesus Christ, the only way anyone can ever receive Jesus Christ, by faith alone in Jesus Christ, had so quickly turned away from the gospel which had been preached to them by Paul and his associates, which had led to their salvation. He uses this phrase, And question, who has bewitched you? The word translated who is a singular relative pronoun. It's not who meaning many people, but one person. And I would suggest to you this morning that Paul had in mind the devil himself. 
Because Satan is the father of lies, according to what Jesus says. And he's been a liar from the beginning. And it was he who had bewitched them. The word bewitched means to cast a spell upon or to fascinate. It was associated with sorcerers in the day of Paul. And a sorcerer would make eye contact with an individual. And if that individual locked eyes with a sorcerer, then the sorcerer could cast a spell upon the person and bewitch the person. Who has bewitched you? And anybody who would suggest that he or she or anyone else must add to the work of Jesus Christ in order to reach a higher level of relationship with God is a person who is in this camp of being bewitched and in some cases being a tool in the hands of the devil as a false teacher. You foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. What so astonished Paul was that Jesus Christ had been placarded, is the word. A, a word that we might use, and it's probably not a legitimate word, but you'll understand it when I say it. Jesus Christ had been publicly billboarded before these Galatians. And the way in which that had happened, of course, Jesus had been crucified long before the Galatians heard the gospel. But in the preaching of the gospel, in their mind's eye, the Holy Spirit had revealed that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior of the world and He is the only way to God the Father. And they had seen this in their mind's eyes. But they had taken their eyes off the ball, we might say. They had taken their eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says to us, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. So what do we see in this passage of Scripture? Here these people had become bewitched, and they were foolish to do what they had done. They had taken their eyes off of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified. Jesus had been crucified for their sins. The verb which is translated crucified is a word which means that the crucifixion was certainly an historic event, but the implications and impact of the crucifixion is enduring. It has impact on us today. If we've received Jesus Christ, what Christ did for us on the cross still has implications for us and will throughout eternity. The Puritans had a saying. It went like this. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. You know what the gospel is, right? It's stated in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've looked at this first question. And what we see here is that Paul was wanting these Galatians to take stock of where they had moved. They had moved away from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the second question in verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. 
Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And actually, this is the key question of all these questions. It's reiterated by Paul in verse 5. We'll see that in a moment. But this is the one question that Paul is pinning everything on. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? The works of the law. Let's stop just a moment and consider what that meant. Simply put, it's those things which were prescribed by the law of God in the Old Testament. Doing what the law commands. Is it on the basis of obeying the law that you receive the Spirit? Is what Paul is asking these believers in Galatia. And it's a question which the Holy Spirit would ask you today. Are you banking on your own good works? Are you banking on your own efforts to make yourself right with God? Or did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? That simply means by believing the gospel message as the only way whereby a person can be saved from his or her sin. Because you heard the gospel and you believed. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, how can they hear without a preacher? And he's not talking about a person like me standing in front of a group of people like you. He's talking about anybody who comes with the good news. And remember, in that same passage in Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is not about man's achievement. Rather, it is about the achievement of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Look, people everywhere who are saved are saved by the work of Christ, not by their own efforts. And any suggestion of that or any movement in that direction is a very dangerous suggestion and a very dangerous move, as we're going to see. Let's look at the third question in verse 3. Are you so foolish? He comes again at them by calling them idiots, in effect. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What is the flesh? It's not the stuff that covers our skeletal system and our muscular system. It's, it's not that. Our flesh is our personalities outside the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Whenever I take matters into my own hands as a follower of Jesus, when I do that, what I do is I step out from under the umbrella of the authority of the Holy Spirit of God and I act in a selfish manner. And what Paul is saying to these believers in Galatia, he's saying, you began in the Spirit. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let me take a moment to talk about this phrase, being perfected. These false teachers were saying that a person could reach a place of what we would call sinless perfection. And in order to reach that level, that individual or those individuals had to be circumcised. They had to do something in addition to what Christ has done. It just doesn't happen that way. I'll never forget, probably close to 15 years ago, 
I was with a group of men from our church. We were part of a large group in a setting in rural Alabama. And one of the men from our group gave his personal testimony. His background was one which indicated that a man is saved not simply by placing faith in Jesus, but in addition to that, works. As he stood, this was a man's man. As he stood and he gave his testimony, he began to weep. He said, this gospel is free. I cannot do anything. I don't have to do anything. I simply have to throw myself upon the mercy of God in the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to understand. We are perfect in Christ. Do you understand that? Because blessed are we who are in Christ Jesus. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We are in Jesus Christ so that when God the Father sees us now, He does not see us in relationship to Him based upon anything we have done or might do, but simply and solely upon what Christ has done for us. When God sees us who have trusted Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, He sees us as if He is looking at Jesus Himself. Now, He knows better. He's omniscient. He knows there's still a gap between where I am and where I must go in order to become like Jesus fully. And as I understand it, according to the book of 1 John, I will be like Christ when He comes to receive me when I die physically or when He comes again. But we must understand that we cannot be perfected by the flesh. Let me back up just a moment. Typically when we think of the flesh, and we're going to get to this, God willing, in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians, typically when we think of the flesh, what do we think of? We think about people living to please themselves, people who love money, people who love pleasures of all sorts. It usually is something that's kind of lurid, isn't it, when we think about it? That's what we think about when we think of the flesh. But do you know there is an expression of the flesh which is represented in these false teachers in Galatia that is much more insidious, much more dangerous than those kinds of expression. It's all sin, but it's what would be called religious flesh. In other words, my own flesh, if the devil can't give me to give in to those kind of ugly expressions as we would think of fleshly behavior, he sure has a way of hooking me with religious expression of the flesh. Because, hey, I like to boast about myself. I like to feel good about myself. Do you? Now, that's my flesh talking, okay? This is not the Lord talking right now. But Christ came so that we would not boast in ourselves. What does Paul say later in the book of Galatians? He said, if I'm going to boast about anything... I'm going to boast about Christ crucified. I'm going to be boasting about Jesus. I'm not going to be boasting about me. So in my case, if I do religious things, like preach a sermon or teach a lesson or share Christ with someone or give money to the church or help somebody who's in trouble in physical ways or emotional ways or financial ways, whatever, if I do those things... The devil has a way of coming and tempting me to want to brag about this. But please understand 
that the Bible is very clear in both Old and New Testaments. The Scripture says, let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows and understands the Lord. How do we know the Lord? Through Jesus. It's through Him and what He has done for us that empowers us to have this kind of relationship. Let's go to question four. It's in verse four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And the word suffer could be translated and rightly translated experience. So let's insert the word experience here. Did you experience so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now remember... What argument is Paul appealing to in this section of Galatians to help them understand what the gospel is? Did you experience the reception of Jesus Christ by faith alone in vain? If indeed it was in vain? Well, certainly not. Was your experience, were your sufferings useless? Not at all. They would have understood that. Let's look at the fifth question in verse 5. Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul sounds like a broken record, doesn't he? Kind of like me when I teach a lot. I know I do. But this is the way that the Holy Spirit was trying to drive this truth home to the Galatian believers. And it's probable that this is what the Holy Spirit's doing in some man or woman's life today. So you will understand that if you have a genuine faith, there's only one way it started, and it's only one way that it will continue. It will not be started by works, and it will not be continued by works. If you have real faith, it was started by the Spirit, And the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to continue in this walk of faith. He talks about the working of miracles among you in verse 5. And these miracles were the work of the Spirit. And on the surface, it would seem this is a reference to what we would call modern-day miracles or miracles in any age, the kinds of miracles which Jesus did. And certainly we know He does those. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God says in the book of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Believe it. Anything that God has done in the past, He's certainly capable of doing today or tomorrow or the next day. He can do it. Sometimes in our eagerness to see this kind of sign or wonder, we overlook the miracles which He performs in individual lives by His Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, 27, God says, I will put My Spirit in you and move you to be careful to obey Me. I'm paraphrasing the last part of verse 27. But God puts His Spirit in us. When we receive Jesus Christ, how does He come to live in us? Romans 8, 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, that person does not belong to Christ. So how are we indwelled by the Spirit? The Spirit is given to us by God the Father, and the Spirit works in us. If you don't have the Spirit, you you do not have the Lord Jesus Christ. I read about a man who had a very terrible drinking problem, 
before he met Jesus Christ. He met Jesus Christ and his life was radically rearranged by Jesus. A friend of his who was a skeptic asked him, you don't believe in the miracles in the Bible, do you? And quickly, this man who had been rescued from alcoholism said, yes, I do. And the skeptic asked another question. He said, do you really believe that Jesus Christ turned water into wine? He says, oh, yes. In my home, Jesus turned wine into food and clothing and furniture. That seems so incidental, doesn't it? It doesn't seem really exciting. But that's what Jesus does when people receive Christ. They are changed. They are irrevocably changed. The Bible says in the book of Romans eleven twenty nine that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be changed. So when God calls you and gives you the Holy Spirit and you are justified before God, you're made right before God, what is the result? You're fixed up. You're not perfect yet. In Christ, you're perfect. Hopefully that's been established. You're on the pathway to becoming more like Jesus, which will be consummated in the second coming of Christ. Let me ask you a question. On what grounds are the Spirit's gifts imparted to us? Works of the law or faith of hearing? Well, having begun his appeal to the Galatians' personal experience, Paul now appeals to the Scriptures themselves. There was no New Testament. Paul didn't even know that this book was a book which would be revered for centuries and millennia. He didn't understand that at this time, but it was so. So Paul begins with the Old Testament testimony regarding the faith of Abraham in verses 6 through 9. So let's look at these verses. The first verse 6 says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So, this little phrase, even so Abraham, some of the translations say, even as Abraham believed God. The strong suggestion is this, that just like Abraham received the Lord by believing, and the result was that he was made right with God, the same applies to you and me. This is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ that we who trust in Jesus Christ just as surely as Abraham, and by the way, Abraham was the only person who was specifically described in the Scripture as the friend of God, the only person. Now, we're friends of God. The Scripture is very clear in that. In the book of James and the book of John, there's indication that we who know Jesus, He calls us friends. No longer are we called slaves. He calls us friends. But here is Abraham. He believed God, and it was reckoned to him, is the way the New American Standard translates it. Some of your translations say credited to him. That's a, a, an idea that conveys better to me, at least, and probably to you, because it's the idea of something being charged to somebody's account. And this is what was charged. Abraham's belief equaled 
Abraham's right standing with God. Our acceptance with God is due to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Now let's look a little further in verse 7. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now remember what we read from Luke 4 about Jesus' first public preaching after he had been baptized and spent 40 days in the wilderness and the Lord sent him on his mission and he started in his own hometown synagogue. I remember the first time I ever preached in my own home church. I was very nervous. I'm nervous every time I ever stand up to teach, preach, to tell you the truth. But I was especially nervous that day. I wanted to do so well. Now, Jesus was not in any way bothered by that. Remember, he's God in the flesh. He didn't have those kind of issues like I have. But when he began to teach, he opened the scroll, he taught, and did you notice as we read from Luke chapter 4 what the Scripture says, all were speaking well of him. Boy, they were loving it. They were really eating up what Jesus was having to say. Wonderful. Until he got to some illustrations. And do you remember the illustrations? He talked about a three and a half year period of drought and famine in Israel and how it was a widow in Zarephath in Sidon and where is Zarephath in Sidon? It's not in Israel. This little widow was a Gentile and she was the one who Elijah went to. Wow. And then to add fire that was even more furious to this discussion, what did Jesus illustrate with about a man named Naaman who was a Syrian, a non-Jew, right, who came to know Christ, at least in promise, came to know God by faith. And it made them so mad they wanted to kill Jesus. They took him to the edge of the city. Nazareth is set on a hill. They were going to throw him over. The reason they were going to do that is there were two forms of stoning people, one the traditional form that we think of, someone taking a rock and throwing, several people taking rocks and killing people with rocks. Or a quicker way was just to take a person to a high place and push that person over and the person would die on the rocks when that person hit bottom. But these people were upset. And the Judaizers would have definitely been upset at what Jesus said and then also here in verse 7, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. In other words, it's not natural lineage from Abraham that makes a person a child of Abraham. What is it? It's faith in Jesus Christ alone. Abraham believed God and what happened? It was credited to him as righteousness. Now look at verse 8. And the scripture, and let me pause here just a moment, what we're going to read in the latter part of verse 8 is a quotation from Genesis 15:6, And God is the one who is speaking there because the Lord said, all the nations will be blessed in you. So whenever we read the Word of God, guess what we're hearing? We're hearing the voice of God. It's God's speaking when we read the Scriptures. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, you and me, most of us are not descendants of Abraham. 
preached the gospel before him. The scriptures preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. That one statement, isn't that what the scripture says? All the nations will be blessed in Abraham. That is good news for us who are not descendants of Abraham. Because we have the possibility of placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Have you done that? Are you depending on anything other than the work of Jesus Christ to make you right with God? If you are, you need to repent of that in order to be sure that you have eternal life. And then verse 8. Well, I've already mentioned 8. Let's look at 9, which summarizes this. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. He is the prototypical believer. Paul goes on to talk not only about Abraham's being made right with God, Abraham's way of justification, which is our way of justification, placing faith in Christ alone. But he talks about the curse of the law of God in verses 10 through 14. In verses 10 through 12, he paints a picture of man's desperate condition if man seeks acceptance with God based on the works of the law. So let's look at these verses 10 through 12. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. He quotes from Deuteronomy 27, 26. What's the suggestion? If I hope to be made right with God, how much of the law must I keep? How much? All of it. Is there any man or woman here who has kept all the law of God? The Bible says in the book of James, if it's possible for me to keep all the law of God, every jot and tittle of the law, if I can do all of that and only break one law one time, I'm guilty of having broken it all. You see the condition, how terrible the condition of man is? Trying to reach God, and that's what religion is. It's man's attempt to reach God and to do something for God instead of letting God come and do for us what we could never do for ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that there is a place for good works in the Christian life, but don't get the cart before the horse. That's what people do. They think, I've got to do a bunch of good works, and hopefully my good works will outweigh my bad works, and therefore the result will be, maybe if I'm lucky, the Lord will accept me into heaven. Well, it's not about luck. It has nothing to do with luck. It has to do with the sovereignty of God. God wants to save us by calling us to trust in Jesus Christ alone and the work which the Lord Jesus himself has done. Look at verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for why? The righteous man shall live by faith. This is a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the Old Testament prophet. The righteous man shall live by faith. It's used elsewhere. And the writer of Hebrews uses it. Paul uses it again in the first chapter of the book of Romans 12. He appeals to another verse. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary... He who practices them shall live by them. Now, there are two ways. I know I'm really maybe overkilling this, but it's what we're reading the Bible, right? 
and if the Lord wants to overdo it, it's okay. It's a problem if I overdo it, but it's not if he overdoes it. Okay? He says there are two ways of living. One is by faith, practicing a life of faith, and the other is practicing the law. Now, which one do you want? He's saying that to the Galatians, and that's what the Lord's saying to us today. Which one do you prefer? A life of faith, which ensures eternal life, even when you mess up along the way? Or do you want a life which requires that you keep all the law of God? Well, there's really no logical choice, is there? There's only one choice. That's trusting in Jesus alone. In the last two verses, Paul sets forth Christ as the one who has taken care of our problem. And aren't you grateful that he has? It's he who has secured our salvation. So let's look. There are three aspects of what Christ has done for us that we need to look at. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now let's stop there just a moment. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good. And here's an interesting statement. These are all found in Romans chapter 3. The scripture says that there's no one who seeks the Lord. Do you know if you seek the Lord, it's because He's seeking you? Do you understand that? It's not about how you work up your own fervor to seek and know the Lord. It's He seeks you. Remember what we saw to begin with what Jesus says in Luke 19:10 about his advent what does he say the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost this is Jesus this is the gospel that's what Christ has done for us Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law probably you know that the word which Paul uses here for redeemed is a word which means to buy out from it's a word which was used to describe a slave being purchased in a slave market by an individual. It was also used to describe prisoners of war who were ransomed out of their captivity. But it's more than that. We have been set free. Remember what we read from Luke 4? Jesus Christ came to set the captives free. We've been set free. Praise the Lord. Unbelievable. But also, this word carries with it the idea of the satisfaction of a violated justice. In other words, it's the idea of a ransom being paid for a forfeited life. If we were to look at Exodus 21:30, it's the idea of a life for a life. Whose life was it for my life and your life? It was the life of Jesus for our lives. A person in mind who was under the curse, and all of us were under this curse because of our sin. Something had to happen to pay for our sin. We couldn't pay for it ourselves. Religion tries to pay for its own sin. But we who have come to know Christ understand that the law has been given to us not so we can fulfill it because we can't. The law has been given to us, according to Romans chapter 3, 21, to show us the impossibility 
of our making ourselves right with God so that we would throw ourselves on the mercy of God. This gospel is for people who are appointed to die. As I was seeking an illustration of this from the Bible, I thought about Barabbas. You know the story of Barabbas? It was the custom of Pilate at the Passover to free one person who was a prisoner, who was a Jew, and the people would declare who that would be. He would come before them and to curry favor with them, he'd say, now's the time I'm going to pardon for you one person whom you would have pardoned. And he gave them the opportunity to pardon Jesus, but they didn't want Jesus, did they? Whom did they want? Barabbas. Barabbas is in his jail cell not very far from where this proceeding was occurring. And all of a sudden, he began to hear his name, Barabbas, 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 Barabbas. And the whole crowd was shouting his name. I wonder, we don't have a way to know for sure, but I wonder what went through his mind. And as he heard the jailer walking down the corridor, and his name was still ringing in his ears from having heard what he heard the crowd to say, And as the jailer walked down, maybe he was thinking as he heard the keys jangle at the waist of this jailer, he thought, this is my time. I'm going to be crucified. And he undoubtedly had seen what would happen to people who were crucified. And all of a sudden, the jailer, without word, stuck the key, unlocked the cell, opened the door, and he said, you are free. Can you imagine what that did to that man? I expect to see Barabbas in heaven. Not because he was chosen over Jesus, but because I'm sure he wanted to know why was I set free. And I know Jesus would have revealed himself. He may have even been present at the crucifixion. We have no record of that, but certainly that's true. Do you know you and I were just as guilty as Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist? Probably that meant he was a murderer, he was a thief. We are just as guilty before God. We are under a curse just as surely as He was for His sin. But Christ, the Scripture says, bought us back from the curse of the law. Now look again in verse 13. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Here, Paul borrows from Deuteronomy chapter 21-23. Now follow carefully. We're almost through this morning. The idea was there was no such thing as crucifixion in Moses' day when he wrote Deuteronomy 21-23. But there was a practice within Israel when a man who was guilty of a heinous crime was executed by stoning, then that man's body would be placed on a tree in full view of all the people in a particular community so people could see what happened to people who broke the law of God. It was a sign of humiliation, degradation. This body hanged on a tree. Was Jesus humiliated when he was hanged on the cross? Beyond our imagination. Jesus, the Bible says, became sin on our behalf in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. So Christ was cursed for me. 
Jesus subbed in for me. Jesus became the place where all the wrath of God was poured out for me and for you and for anyone else who trusts in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Is this gospel a great gospel? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Let's look at verse 14 as we wind it up. Christ was hanged on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What is the blessing of Abraham? Salvation, right? Justification is the theological term. It's used in the Scriptures. We're made right with God. We have a perfect standing in Christ by faith before a holy God. A group of people came to Jesus. The story is recorded in John 6. And they asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of Him? God. And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one whom He has sent. What is the only work I can do? To believe. Trust Christ. Do you remember in John 3 when Jesus is Great verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But right before this, he alludes to something that's recorded in Numbers where the people of Israel had rebelled against God and God sent a plague of snakes upon them and people were bit by these vipers. They were dying from the poison from these snakes and Moses interceded for them, Lord, what shall I do? And the Lord said, make a bronze serpent, put it in a place where everybody in the camp can see it. And these people were dying. And he fashioned the serpent. He put it in a place where people could easily see it from wherever they were. All they had to do, the Scripture says, is look at it and what would happen? They were made well. That's what Jesus was teaching All we have to do is look to Jesus because His name is the only name under heaven whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. How can we be saved from our sins? Only one way, through the name of Jesus. When Paul and Silas were in the bowels of the Philippian jail, an earthquake occurred. The jailer who had been asleep awoke. He saw that the jail cell doors were open. He feared that everyone had left. He's ready to kill himself. And all of a sudden, Paul and Silas say, don't kill yourself, we're here. And then he looked at them and he said, what must I do to be saved? What was the answer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's the way we're saved. Only through what Christ has done for us. Would you bow your head? If you've never received Jesus in this way, you have been laboring under a misconception, not a scriptural conception, but a misconception about what it means to be saved. Today is the day of your salvation. You're not here by accident. The Lord knew you would be here. He knew that this text would be the text which would be taught today. And He is speaking to your heart. In the privacy of your heart, would you say... A simple prayer, Lord, save me. 
Lord, forgive me for trying to add something to what you have done for me. Lord, come into my life and take full control of me. Amen.